0: All Bones considered Laurel Hill Stories number 53 for August 2023. Suited to a tee, golf course pioneers at Laurel Hill. historic landmark, an arboretum, a sculpture garden, a nature preserve, and an active cemetery in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It opened in 1836, and it remains a popular visiting spot for tens of thousands of visitors every year. Its sister cemetery, Laurel Hill West, located across the Schuylkill River in Ballack-Kinwood, was founded in 1869. It has a history and a population of its own. I am Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine at Temple University in Philadelphia, volunteer tour guide at Laurel Hill East and Laurel Hill West, and volunteer podcaster. You don't have to live in Philadelphia for very long before you discover it's a hotbed for golf. With dozens of courses in and around the city, it's a good game for men and women alike. Laurel Hill is the final resting place of many American golf pioneers. Ida Dixon was the first woman golf course architect in the country. Hugh Wilson and Charles Thomas were two of the six architects who made up what is called the Philadelphia School. The two of them helped build four of the top-ranked courses in the country. Charles Bailey met his final fate on the fourth green of Marion East Cricket Club. Plus, you'll learn about cliques and condors, heroic holes and featheries, Randolph Scott, Mary Queen of Scott, and a golf hole called the May West, among other things. Even if you're not a golfer, there are things for you to learn on today's All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories suited to a tee golf course pioneers. The answer to my surprise was an even hundred. I asked Bing AI, how many golf courses are located within 20 miles of Philadelphia's City Hall? And that was the answer that came back eight golf courses in the city, five of them municipal. Among the other 92 are 22 public, 13 municipal, and 55 private courses. I drilled down. How many golf courses in Bucks County? Answer, 11. Delaware County, 15. How about Chester County? 30. Montgomery County, 58. Camden County, across the Delaware, 13. They are literally everywhere, many hiding in plain sight. I randomly searched around the Philadelphia area on Google Earth. And it seemed like there was a golf course every three or four grids. I've lived three or four blocks from a golf course since 1989, the paradoxically named Bala Golf Club, which is not in Bala. It's on the rim of Philadelphia. That's okay though, because Philadelphia Country Club is in Gladwin. It's about five miles from the city limit. Anyway, if Bing AI and I did our math right, there are 135 golf courses in Philadelphia and its Collar counties. According to Golf Magazine, the number one golf course in the country is Pine Valley in New Jersey, almost exactly 20 miles from City Hall. Hugh Wilson, interred at Laurel Hill West, helped design four of its holes. Ranked number eight is Marion East, That was completely designed by Hugh Wilson. Number 10 is Los Angeles North, designed by Laurel Hill East resident George C. Thomas Jr. He also designed Riviera, number 14, and Bel Air, which somehow missed the cut of the top 100. It's one of the six classic golf clubs in Los Angeles. And the ubiquitous Frederick Winslow Taylor, who finished fourth in the golf competition at the 1900 Summer Olympics, spent years working on the grass for putting greens, which is used at Pine Valley to this day. So Laurel Hill residents are completely or partially responsible for four of the top 14 golf courses in the country. Games like golf have been played in Europe since the Middle Ages. But the game that involves a club, a ball, and a hole in the ground developed over several centuries in Scotland, which all golfers now recognize as their mecca. The earliest playing fields were on the Scottish Lynx land. Sandy deposits along the seacoast left over centuries by the receding ocean and wind. Lynxland, from the old English word Hlink, H-L-I-N-C, was not suitable for agriculture, but it was ideal for using a stick to skitter a small round object across the ground toward a target. Lynx is now often used as a generic term for any golf course. Let's hit the Lynx. But a Lynx is only one of several types of courses. There's also a parkland course, which is inland, with lots of trees and lush grass. A heath course, found mostly in the British Isles. There the ground is covered in gorse and heather. A sand belt course, found mostly in Australia. A championship or stadium course, which is built on a large scale. It's designed to attract tournaments, both large and small. They have enough room to allow easy movement of large crowds and the par-3 course, which some people refer to as golf light. Lynxland is in a northern latitude, where summer daylight hours extend from 3 a.m. to 11 p.m. So the courses would also be used by people other than the leisure class. Golf was an early democratic tradition in Scotland. The earliest Scottish links were strictly designed by nature, a typical lynx had high, windswept sand dunes and hollows where grass grew, predominantly bent grass with a little fescue mixed in. It was sufficient to support a leather-bound, feather-stuffed golf ball, known as a feathery. The terrain of lynx dictated the route that a player would follow. A golfer who batted his feathery about a lynx aimed for the playable sward and avoided the dunes and the prickly gorse. There were no trees or ponds, so hazards were what nature had dictated. Ground grazed bare by cattle and sheep, burrows of small animals that collapsed into pits, shifting sands altered by water and winds. There were no tees, or fairways as such, or even putting greens. Sometimes a rabbit hole was used as the target. And it became customary to start the drive to the next hole from less than a club's length from the prior hole. In other words, people would drive from the green. Man was little involved in sculpting or maintaining the links. It was all nature's doing. There was no set number of holes. Golfers would wander out as far as they could play, and then turn around and play their way back in. Sometimes they played as few as five holes, other times as many as 22. The gold standard St. Andrews, which has existed since about 1414, was the original lynx. Playable areas of grass were bordered by thick patches of heather, and most of the sand bunkers were hidden from a player's view until he went searching for his ball. The outline of the hole routing resembled a shepherd's crook. There were 12 putting surfaces, 10 of them served on both the outward trek and the return. The other two were used only once, so a round of golf at St. Andrews consisted of 22 holes, 11 out to the furthest point and 11 back. In the middle of the 18th century, men started to get involved in configuring golf courses. It was sometime in the 1700s that putting greens came into being, although separate tees didn't exist until after 1875. In 1764, the Society of St. Andrew's Golfers decided their first four holes weren't challenging enough, so they were consolidated into two long holes. This eliminated two greens and four holes. Now each hole was played twice around and it reduced a game at St. Andrews to the now familiar 18 holes. An old wives tale provides another explanation. A bottle of Scotch whiskey contains about 800 milliliters, roughly a fifth of a gallon. That's why it's called a fifth. A golfer would drink a one and a half ounce shot per hole. An ounce is 30 milliliters. So one and a half ounces times 30 milliliters per ounce times 18 holes, equals 810 milliliters. Hmm. In 1832, the Lynx keepers at St. Andrew's started cutting two holes into each of the common greens, one for the journey out, one for the in. To avoid confusion, different colored flags were used to distinguish between outbound holes and inbound holes. The flags were especially helpful when St. Andrews alternated clockwise with counterclockwise to minimize wear and tear on the course. Golfers, of course, also used them to gauge wind conditions so close to the shore. In 1834, King William V recognized the St. Andrews links to be royal and ancient, and it became the official home of golf. Man started manipulating the things on the course. The fairways, shared by outbound and inbound golfers alike, were widened from 40 yards to 100 yards. The shared putting greens were also widened and eventually separated. When the St. Andrew's 17th green was rebuilt, an architect had his hand in it. He added artificial hazards to that section of the course. The philosophy of the game changed. Until now, every player had to contend with every hazard. But a wider fairway, he could now take a longer and safer course to avoid bunkers and ponds and other dangers. The bold, accurate player could overcome the hazards and maybe shave a few strokes off his score, while the not-so-bold, not-so-accurate player can still make his way about the course safely but suffer a higher score for his caution. By manipulating the land to change the risk for a golfer, the occupation of golf course architect was born. They started by maneuvering what was already in place and gradually learned to build a challenging course from scratch. They quickly learned that a nine-hole course required at least 40 acres. Add 10 acres to that for a clubhouse and access and double it to at least 100 acres. For an 18-hole course. They discovered that orienting a course with holes lying in an east-west direction led to unpleasant play because of sun in the golfer's eyes. Gently rolling topography was preferred over pronounced dips and rises. A running creek was preferred over a pond. For one thing, it would limit mosquito breeding grounds, and a golfer could usually recover his ball more easily. Architects started thinking of holes in terms that sound like Greek epics. A strategic hole, it's all about options. A player has many ways to attack the hole, but there is no clear set best route. There's often a safe way to play the hole, but it will usually be the longest or the least likely path to a low score. These holes start to feel like puzzles and figuring out the best way to play them can depend on the day, the win conditions. The player must always keep thinking on a strategic hole. A penal hole requires a compulsory carry over hazards with no alternate routes. The hallmark sign of a penal hole is that a player must hit a shot accurately. There's no chance at recovery for a miss. For example, A hole where the green is on an island and there's no strip of land that leads to it. Your ball is either on the green or in the water. A heroic hole is a blend of strategic and penal. A player is given the option to absorb risk for a greater reward. Imagine a hole that wraps around water. The further you are willing to carry the water, the shorter your approach shot. You can try to carry a shot over a lot of water, be a hero, or you can play it safe away from the water. Heroic holes often bait players into trying a challenging shot and then penalize them sharply. But there's still lots of strategy to these holes. There are different paths, all with different amounts of risk. Purists refused to call newer courses links. So they invented new terms to describe inland, and by implication, inferior golf courses. The first term was green, which led to derivatives like green keeper, green fee, green committee. Later golfing course became popular, and finally golf course. I mentioned the feathering, earlier as the ball that was used. Feathery goes back to ancient handball games of royalty and royal princesses. Sports such as track or wrestling were almost exclusively male, as they had an obvious training function in a world of physical prowess and military leadership. Leisure sports, such as handball or its derivatives, tennis and golf, were the prerogative of people who had leisure, such as royal princesses. In 1567, Mary, Queen of Scots, was accused by her enemies of playing golf at Seton Hall only a few days after the murder of her husband, Lord Darnley, in which they said she was implicated. She practiced archery and tennis, which women usually played with the assistance of a servant, so golf is not out of the question. A feathery. A feathery was made from three pieces of partially sewn leather, stuffed with wet feathers or down, and then sewn shut. As the feathers dried, they expanded. As the leather dried, it shrank. Afterwards, the balls were painted white for protection and so that they could be found. An average ball maker would make two to three balls a day but an expert ball maker could make 50 to 60 featheries in a week. In 1844, with an apprentice, Alan Robertson made 2,456 feathery golf balls. A top-quality feathery would sell for five shillings, or a crown, or 60 pence. Though All of those are a twentieth of a pound. But that five shillings is more than $20 per ball in today's currency it could carry a surprising distance. Glasgow golfer John Gibson hit five featheries, an average distance of 193 yards, ranging from 182 to 201 yards. Because of their cost, golfers often hired a four caddy or someone to stand on the fairway to keep an eye out for the ball. Before he struck the ball, the golfer would shout, four caddy! which was eventually shortened to just four. Caddy, by the way, was the Scottish term for an all-purpose porter or errand boy. The feathery was eventually replaced by the gutty, which was molded out of gutta-percha. The traditional story of its creation says that in 1843, a divinity student named Robert Adams Patterson of St. Andrews received a package from Singapore with a statue of the god Vishnu. For protection, it was packed in gutta percha, a dried gum resin from the Malaysian sapodilla tree. Patterson tried heating and molding it to make golf balls, but his early experiments were not successful. After he graduated and emigrated to America, his brother continued his work to create an acceptable prototype golf ball, which he stamped Patterson's Composite, patented, Starting in 1848, gutties started to replace featheries. Gutta-percha was also used in canes and walking sticks. History buffs will recall that in 1856, United States Representative Preston Brooks used a gutta-percha cane as a weapon in his attack on Senator Charles Sumner on the floor of the Senate. The first gutties were smooth, but golfers soon noticed that the ball went longer and straighter after it acquired some nicks and blemishes, so they began to intentionally damage the surface, scuff up the ball. A saddle maker in St. Andrews used his tools to create regular grooves in a new ball, which was now called a bramble because of its resemblance to bramble fruit. The initial reception to the gutty was mixed. It was not demonstrably better than a feathery, but it cost a lot less, and it lasted a lot longer. The cost of a gutty was one shilling, much cheaper than a feathery, and it was a main factor in bringing golf to the masses. Eventually, gutties were good enough and popular enough to replace the featheries, and a new era of golf was born. The gutty lasted until about 1900. In 1898, Coburn Haskell of Cleveland, Ohio drove to nearby Akron, Ohio, for a golf date with Bertram Work, superintendent of the B.F. Goodrich Company. While he waited in the plant for work, Haskell picked up some rubber thread, and he wound it into a ball, which he bounced. It almost hit the ceiling. Work suggested Haskell put a cover on his creation, and soon the rubber Haskell golf ball overtook the gutty, led the way to wound rubber balls. The now familiar dimple pattern was added a few years later. What about the clubs? In the earliest days of golf a set of clubs consisted of long noses for driving, fairway clubs or grassed drivers for medium range, spoons for short shots, niblicks used like wedges, and a putting clique a club with virtually no angle in the head. They were made of wood. The shafts were ash or hazel, and the heads were made from tougher fruit wood like apple, holly, and beech or pear. The club head was connected to the shaft with a splint and then bound with a leather strap. Wooden clubs were expensive due to the time and effort that went into making them, and they were prone to break. Around 1750, the first clubheads made of iron emerged from local blacksmith shops. They were used for niblicks or wedges. A niblick derived from the Dutch word for little nose is now called nine iron. In 1826, Robert Forgan, a club maker in Scotland, started to use imported hickory from America to make club shafts, and it quickly became the standard wood of choice for club makers due to its availability and durability. Even now, golfers who try to recreate the past play a form called hickory golf, and yes, they use gutties. Sunday sticks, or Sabbath sticks, were the golf enthusiasts' answer to the Church of Scotland's discouragement of golfing on Sundays. A golf club was disguised as a walking stick, with the club head comfortably fitting into the palm. When the golfer was unobserved, he reversed the stick, and he played a few holes. With the discovery of drop-forging techniques in the 1870s, factories started to mass-produce iron club heads, which made them more consistent, lighter, and superior to the ones made by blacksmiths. In 1908, it was discovered that grooves on the club face could increase backspin and generate more distance. All of these changes were adopted in pursuit of the par. A par is the predetermined number of strokes that a proficient golfer should require to complete a hole. Par is primarily determined by the playing length of each hole from the teeing ground to the putting green. Holes are generally assigned par values between 3 and 5, which includes a regulation number of strokes to reach the green based on the average distance a proficient golfer hits the ball, and two putts. On occasion, factors other than distance are considered when setting the PAR for the hole. These include altitude, terrain, and obstacles that result in a hole playing longer or shorter than its measured distance. In general, a PAR-3 hole for men will be less than 260 yards from the tee to the green. A PAR-4 hole will be 240 to 490 yards. Par 5 will be 450 to 710 yards, and par 6, yes, a few do exist, will be more than 670 yards. For women, the distances are shorter. A score of one stroke more than par for a hole is known as a bogey. This was recognized as the number of strokes that a merely good golfer should take on each hole. It first came to use in England in about 1890, based on the phrase, bogeyman, and a popular music hall song, Here Comes the Bogeyman. Players competed against Colonel Bogey, an imaginary player who scored a predetermined number of strokes on each hole. The winner of the competition was the player who had the best match play score against Colonel Bogey. The term gave the title to a 1914 British marching tune, Colonel Bogey March, which you can almost certainly whistle. in excess of one stroke more than par for a hole are known as double bogey, triple bogey, and so on. A hole score of one stroke less than par is known as a birdie. This expression was coined in 1899 at the Atlantic City Country Club in Northfield, New Jersey. Three Philadelphia golfers, George Crump, who later was architect for the Pine Valley Golf Club about 45 miles away, William Pulteney Smith, a founding member of Pine Valley, he's interred at Laurel Hill East, Section 10, and his brother Ab Smith, Laurel Hill West, in the Rockland section, they were playing together when Crump hit his second shot only inches from the cup on a par-4 hole after his first shot had struck a bird in flight. Simultaneously, the Smith brothers exclaimed that Crump's shot was a bird. Crump's short putt left him one under par for the hole and from that day the three of them referred to such a score as a birdie. Soon other golfers called a score of two under par an eagle such as shooting a two on a par four. The rare three under par sometimes called a double eagle but it's more properly known as an albatross. The familiar march under the double eagle was composed in 1893 by J.F. Wagner. I should say Wagner, an Austrian military music composer, and not John Philip Sousa, as many people assume, or at least as I assumed. The title of the march is a reference to the double eagle in the coat of arms of Austria-Hungary, and it has nothing to do with golf or the slang term for a $20 gold piece. Now, what about a four under par? Is that even possible? Yes, but it means you either have to shoot a hole in one on a par five or a two on one of the rare par six holes scattered around the country. Four under par is called a condor. Golf apparently came to North America in the 17th century. In December 1650, near Fort Orange, the modern city of Albany, New York, a group of four men were playing kolf, K-O-L-F, in pairs for points. In July 1657, several men were cited and warned not to play kolf on Sundays. In December 1659, an ordinance was issued to prevent playing kolf on the streets of Albany due to too many windows being broken. Evidence of early golf in the colonies includes a 1739 leading record for a shipment of golf equipment to a William Wallace in Charleston, South Carolina, an advertisement published in the Royal Gazette of New York City in 1779 for golf clubs and balls, and the establishment of the South Carolina Golf Club in 1787 in Charleston. Montreal established the first permanent golf course in North America in 1873, Canada's Royal Montreal Club. The first course in the United States is disputed, but it may have been the Foxburg Country Club in western Pennsylvania near the Allegheny River. It was laid out in 1887. By 1894, the United States Golf Association, the USGA, was formed in New York with five charter members. As in Scotland, American courses were initially left to nature. But as earth-moving equipment was introduced, first with literal horsepower, later with steam or electricity, man started to flex his muscles and design courses from scratch. Machines could move and contour the earth into green tees, and hazards. Cleared areas could be seated or sodded or sanded. Non-golfers started to design courses, including mainline polo master Lemuel Artemis. He's buried at Laurel Hill East in Section T. Artemis supervised the building of the Devon Golf Club while riding around the grounds on his polo pony and striking a polo ball in order to figure out proper driving distances. Golf courses and country clubs have not always automatically gone together. Philadelphia Cricket Club in Chestnut Hill, which is the oldest country club in the United States, was established in 1854 by William Roch Wister. You heard about Wister in earlier podcasts. He was one of the four Wister brothers buried at Laurel Hill East in all bones considered number 25, some Worcester men you may not know. He was also the father of the three remarkable Worcester sisters, all buried at Laurel Hill East. The Philadelphia Cricket Club currently has a short nine-hole course at its original site on West Willow Grove Avenue. It's called the St. Martin's Course. It's named after the adjacent Episcopal Church, St. Martin in the Fields. The St. Martin's Course... Was the site of the first hole-in-one in in U.S. Open history in 1907. Now the cricket club has added two 18-hole courses in White Marsh Township near Flower Town, contiguous with Fort Washington State Park. At one time, Philadelphia had more than 100 cricket clubs. They incorporated other sports activities such as croquet, bowling, and tennis. All played by women as well as men. Members at three of these clubs were also attracted to golf. After the Philadelphia Cricket Club in Chestnut Hill opened its nine-hole course in 1895, golf enthusiasts at the Marion Cricket Club began playing golf the following year, and the Aranamink Golf Club, established in 1900, later relocated to Newtown Square in Delaware County, grew out of the Belmont Cricket Club in southwest Philadelphia. Even before members of cricket clubs became golf enthusiasts, several other country clubs included golf. In 1890, socially prominent Philadelphians, including John Christian Bullitt, 1824 to 1902. He's buried at Laurel Hill East in Section P. His statue also stands outside City Hall and a partner, Edward T. Stotesbury, 1849 to 1938. Stoatsbury was the owner of the massive White Marsh Hall in Springfield Township. They founded the first non-cricket-centered country club in the area, the Philadelphia Country Club, which was established in 1890 on City Avenue. Liveried coachmen met trains from Center City to bring members to the club. The Philadelphia Country Club purchased Steinberg, which was the former country estate of Dr. George H. During. He's buried at Laurel Hill East in Section 14. Steinberg was located within city limits adjacent to Fairmount Park. This was initially a club where members could ride and drive and play polo. But two years after it was founded, the Philadelphia Country Club added a nine-hole golf course. Two of the holes were on land leased from Fairmount Park. As golf got more popular, the course was found to be insufficient, and in 1924, the club purchased property on Spring Mill Road in Gladwin, which could, quote, be reached by automobile in 30 or 35 minutes from City Hall, end quote. Their 18-hole championship golf course opened in 1927. After the success of the Philadelphia Country Club, the City Avenue area became a location of several more clubs including the Balla Golf Club established 1893 on Belmont Avenue within the city limits and the Overbrook Golf Club established 1900 just outside the city on property that later became the site of Lincanow Hospital. Other new country clubs opened throughout the Philadelphia area in the years surrounding the turn of the 20th century. The Harper's official golf guide of 1901 listed about 40 clubs in the Philadelphia area. As golf's popularity boomed in the early 1900s, the need for new golf courses grew, but the lack of architects was glaring. New York City and Boston were boasted the spectacular championship tests of National Golf Links of America, the Garden City Club, and Myopia Hunt Club. Philadelphia was in desperate need of a great course of its own. Philly's problem was exposed at the annual Leslie Cup, a competition where the best golfers from Philadelphia would go head-to-head with the best players from New York City. After several years of sound defeats, A few of Philadelphia's top players pointed to the lack of a local championship test as the reason for their losses and began discussing the fine points of architecture and exploring architecture projects in their backyard. This group of gentlemen became known as the Philadelphia School of Architecture, and together they would build many of America's most iconic classic golf courses. The membership of the Philadelphia School, four Philadelphia Natives, Hugh Wilson, A.W. Tillinghast, George Crump, and George Thomas. There was one Boston transplant, William Flynn, and one Pittsburgh resident, William Founds. Two of them, Wilson and Thomas, are interred at Laurel Hill. When Laurel Hill Cemetery was founded in 1836, it was on a 32-acre plot that had been the country seat of merchant Joseph Sims from 1797 to 1824, complete with a porticoed Georgian mansion and several outbuildings. He called his property along Ridge Pike, Laurel Hill. Between 1824 and 1836, Laurel Hill changed hands several times. For instance, in 1834, Reverend Jeremiah Kiley began operating Laurel Hill College, a Catholic boys' school, on the property. I've related a lot of this early history of the cemetery in all bones considered number one. When the new cemetery owners put out requests for bids for an architect, It was assumed that one of Philadelphia's eminent architects, either William Strickland or Thomas Ostick Walter, would land the job. Much to the surprise of most people, especially William Strickland, the job went to Scottish immigrant John Notman. If those names sound familiar, Strickland was architect for the magnificent Merchant's Exchange on Walnut Street and the recently in the new Second Bank of the United States. He has a cenotaph, or an empty grave at Laurel Hill, in Section D. It's very close to the gatehouse. He is interred in the wall of the Tennessee State Capitol Building. That was his final project in Nashville. That's where he died. Thomas Ustick Walter is interred under a totally illegible marble stone in Section G. He designed the dome of the Capitol Building in Washington, D.C., And after his success with Laurel Hill, John Notman went on to design the Athenaeum, Hollywood Cemetery in Richmond, Virginia, St. Mark's Episcopal Church on Locust Street, St. Peter and Paul Cathedral, many, many other buildings. Between 1836 and 1839, there were seven major buildings on the cemetery's site, Notman's major contribution to the architecture of Laurel Hill was, of course, the Roman Doric gatehouse. But he also built a one-story stone chapel, rectangular, one room colorfully lit from the east by a stained glass window. The chapel only lasted a few years. Cemetery managers saw that most people preferred religious services at their own church, even if the burial was at Laurel Hill. Before the cemetery purchased the land which is now known as South, it was quickly running out of room. It didn't take much calculation to realize that the land under the chapel was more valuable as burial plots than as a location for a mostly empty chapel, and so the building was raised. This section, now available for burials, retained its original name, chapel. And soon those plots sold also. Now I've talked about some people buried in the chapel section. Gas Addicts is there, the crooked utilities millionaire, even though his grave is unmarked. Christine Wetherill-Stevenson, the founder of the Hollywood Bowl, the heiress to the Wetherill paint fortune, and a few others. There are other people in the chapel section I know I want to talk about eventually, including the Trenwith brothers with their lifelike bas-relief portraits on their obelisks, Board of Education bigwig and school namesake Simon Gratz, and probably others. But the topic this month is golf. So I'm going to tell you about Ida E. Dixon. As I already mentioned, women have been attracted to the Lynx since the days of Queen Mary. Toward the middle of the 19th century, there was a caddies' putting green beside the 17th hole at St. Andrews, but women golfers began using it and displaced the caddies. In 1855, Mrs. Wolf Murray, daughter of distinguished golfer John White Melville, was seen regularly playing the links at St. Andrews with two clubs. In 1867, before they'd been granted playing rights at the old course, a group of ladies began to play over the ground that has become the St. Andrews Ladies' Putting Club. The next year in 1868, the North Devon Ladies' Club conducted its first medal competition at Westward Ho in southeast London, accompanied by gentlemen caddies resplendent in scarlet uniforms. In 1870, a six-hole ladies' course was laid out at Perth, Scotland. It's located north of Balhousie Castle. And on 25 August 1873, the Carnoustie Ladies' Golf Club was formed and is now considered the oldest independent ladies' golf club in the world. More competition among women occurred in the 1870s and 1880s, although the courses they played on were secondary. Carnoustie was good enough that men wanted to play it also. But the rules of the club were strict. Men were only allowed on the course when they were accompanied by a lady member. The first golf club which gave equal rights for women as full members is believed to be in 1884 in Aldeburg a coastal town near Suffolk, England. Aldeburg was probably chosen Because the wife of the course and club organizer Skelton Anderson was Elizabeth Garrett Anderson, the first female doctor in Britain and the mayor of Aldeburgh, woman mayor in 1884. While ladies golf clubs were temporarily popular in the United States, they had all but disappeared by the beginning of the 20th century. One exception is the Ladies Golf Club of Toronto. Now in early days of the sport, people wore their normal clothes. Though 18th and 19th century male golfers did wear brightly colored jackets to warn passers-by of the dangers of flying golf balls. Victorian golf dress for women, complete with crinolines, bustles, and multiple petticoats, was somewhat constricting, and it gave women little opportunity for a free swing which undoubtedly influenced the type of golf or putting that women enjoyed. Edwardian fashions which followed were no more accommodating, although most of the younger women golfers favored a simple straw boater, white blouse, and a long black skirt. The impressive millinery of the day, which was de rigueur, was held in place by sturdy hat pins that had golf motifs. Skirt bands were worn to prevent the wind from blowing their skirts around. There were skirts with straps that could adjust the height, and gloves were always worn. Women's golf dress at this time made it look like they were more likely to go on an expeditionary force than a leisure activity. By early 20th century, many women were wearing the same oversized flat caps as the men And shortly afterwards, showing ankles became acceptable. It was earlier in America than it was in Britain. But this greatly relieved the muddy skirt problem. By the time of the flapper era, golf dress was beginning to be more functional, although still basically streetwear. In 1933, an Italian golfer named Gloria Minoprio competed in the British Ladies' Championship in what was the smartest golfing outfit ever worn by any golfer. This was the first sight of a woman in trousers. They were called slacks on the golf course. And to say it caused a stir is an understatement. Her costume is now in the possession of the World Golf Museum in St. Andrews. And apart from her attire, Gloria's other claim to immortal fame is that she played in the British Championship from 1933 to 39 with only one club and a spare. And once she arrived at the tee late in a yellow Rolls Royce, she remains the only golfer, man or woman, to ever win a major golf championship match using only one club. The first USGA Women's Amateur Championship took place in 1895 at Meadowbrook Club in Hempstead, New York. The Women's Golf Association of Philadelphia was founded in 1897 with four founding clubs that are going to sound familiar. Aranamink, Marion, Philadelphia Country, and Philadelphia Cricket. At the 1898 National Women's Championship in on Hudson, New York, second place was grabbed by Edith Brooke Burt from the Philadelphia Country Club. Miss Burt, who died at 87 in 1952, is interred in the shrubbery section at Laurel Hill East. Buried in the chapel section, Lot 89, born on Christmas Day of 1854, Ida Elizabeth Dixon is today recognized as the first female golf course architect in the United States, and probably the first in the world. Ida's father was John Gilbert, 1805 to 1877, a wholesale druggist with an office at 1913 Arch Street. He had married Catherine Hatfield, about whom I can find virtually nothing. I can also find nothing about Ida in the newspapers until she married a wealthy Quaker businessman, Henry P. Dixon, who owned a company that made fireplace grates and was an executive with the Pennsylvania Railroad. In the style of the times, Ida Dixon was thereafter referred to in the newspapers as Mrs. Henry P. Dixon. The wealthy socialite couple lived at a large Wallingford mansion known as the Gables, where their neighbors included Shakespearean scholar Horace Howard Furness, ethnologist Carolyn Furness Jane, and her husband, zoologist Horace Jane. All of them are buried at Laurel Hill East. Wallingford is contiguous with Swarthmore in the western suburbs of Philadelphia in Delaware County. Ida and Henry Dixon both served on the governing committee at the Springhaven Club. It is not clear how Ida took on the job of designing the course, but she did so, and it opened in 1904. She was about 50 at this time. This was her only attempt at designing a golf course. The course has been modified over the past century. Three holes were rebuilt in 2005, but it is a heroic course. It's the blend of penal and strategic that I've talked about before. There are more than 80 bunkers and five holes have water hazards. From 1911 until her death in 1916, Ida also served as president of the Women's Golf Association of Philadelphia, which had been formed in 1897. Ida has only been recognized as a golf pioneer in the late 20th century. The first edition of The Architects of Golf by Cornish and Whitten published in 1981 with a revision in 1993 does not even mention her. It skips from William H. Deech Jr. to Thomas H. Doakes. No Dixon. But on 12 July 2017, the United States Golf Association's Golf Museum unveiled a new exhibit named Breaking New Ground, Women and Golf Course Architecture. Finally, Ida Dixon got her due. And the Ida E. Dixon Cup Golf Tournament, established on 25 September 1917, has been held every year since 1917, with the exception of 1943 during World War II and 1975 when they got rained out. The winner of the golf tournament is awarded the Ida E. Dixon Memorial Cup is an individual stroke play tournament for players with an 18.4 or lower handicap. And following the customs of the day, the list of winners recognizes a married woman only by her husband's surname, Mrs. John Wilson, Mrs. Joseph Chandler, until 1987, when winner Kelly Lord of Rolling Green is identified without a missus or a Miss or a Ms. before her name. It took them to 1987 to get rid of that old custom. When Ida Dixon died in November 1916, her obituary mentioned that she was, quote, active in the social life of the city and was an enthusiastic golfer. She was a member and one time an officer of the Springhaven Country Club. With her husband and her son, Clayton Dixon, who survived her, Mrs. Dixon was accustomed to spend her winters in Florida, Bermuda, or in some other warm climate. Ida's husband, Henry, died just a few months after her. The son, Clayton Dixon, is also buried in the family plot. He was another avid golfer. In June of 1912, he was involved in a car crash near his home. He missed a turn, he crashed into a fence, and then he was thrown out of the car over the fence suffered a broken neck and multiple broken ribs, although there was apparently no neurologic damage. Clayton, who had been born in 1880, was a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania in 1900, and he was captain of the university's first golf team and an honorary member of the racket Club. He was a champion golfer, skeet shooter, and yachtsman. When he died at his home in 1900 Rittenhouse, In 1959, he was 78 years old. His second, third, and fourth wives are all buried in the same plot with him. Ah, but that's probably another story. Sports have their shrines, their meccas. If you, like me, are a baseball fan, A trip to Wrigley Field where the Chicago Cubs have played since 1916 is like a religious pilgrimage. Philadelphia sports fans are very lucky. College basketball aficionados are drawn to the legendary palestra on the University of Pennsylvania campus. It opened in 1927. About a block from the palestra is Franklin Field which was built in 1895 and has been in use ever since for track and field, and football, the Penn Relays, the Eagles played there for many years. As far as golfers, Pine Valley may be the ultimate challenge and is probably on every golfer's bucket list. But Marion East, located in suburban Ardmore, which opened in 1912, is still the gold standard and is consistently ranked as one of the top five golf courses in the country. Now as I mentioned before, at one point in the 19th century there were about a hundred cricket clubs in and around Philadelphia. Ardmore, located on the main line about eight and a half miles from Philadelphia's City Hall had been known as Athensville until 1873. I mentioned Ardmore in the last episode of Biographical Bites from Bala about Strawbridge and Clothier who opened the first suburban branch of a major department store in Ardmore Suburban Square in 1930. Other than that, there was a cluster of commercial establishments along Lancaster Avenue, but much of the land was rugged farm country and there was even a quarry. The Marion Cricket Club was founded in October 1865, just months after the Civil War ended. Most of the sixteen founders were Haverford College students. One of them was William Woodrow Montgomery, whose son, Robert Leeming Montgomery, built the large estate, Ardresen. Robert's daughter, Helen Hope Montgomery Scott, was the inspiration for Tracy Lord, heroine of the 1940 movie, The Philadelphia Story. On film, of course, Tracy was played by Katherine Hepburn, who had her own mainline experience when she attended Bryn Mawr College from 1924 to 1928. Another founder was William's brother Archibald Montgomery who had lost an arm in a cannon accident during Abraham Lincoln's funeral procession through Philadelphia a few months earlier. The Marion Golf Club began as an adjunct to the Cricket Club which had moved to the city of Haverford in 1892. It opened its first golf course in 1896 and expanded to 18 holes in 1900. But as rubber-wrapped golf balls replaced gutties, and the average golfer could drive the ball further, the club realized it needed a bigger course. In 1910, it purchased a V-shaped plot of 130.6 acres near the corner of Haverford Avenue and Ardmore Avenue. Rather than seek an established golf course architect to design the course, they hired the 32-year-old chairman of the Marion Golf Design Committee, Hugh Irvine Wilson. The old course closed on 12 September 1910, and two days later, the new course, now called Marion East, and its golf house were opened. Just a few weeks before the 1912 presidential election that pitted Woodrow Wilson versus William Howard Taft versus Teddy Roosevelt. Membership? At Marion East, quickly soared so that the next year they bought another 122 acres just a short distance down Ardmore Avenue. This property, which later expanded to 126 acres, became the site of the West Course, which opened on 30 May 1914. Hugh Wilson, born in 1879, attended Penn Charter School and then Princeton. When he graduated in 1902, he was captain of the golf team. He was a member of the Belmont Golf Association, whose Iranamink course then was located at 52nd and Chester Streets in West Philadelphia, and he was good enough to win the first club championship. Hugh's father, William Potter Wilson, was a Princeton graduate and an army colonel who had been born in Sutter County, Pennsylvania, but he settled in Philadelphia after serving as an aide to Corps Commander Winfield Scott Hancock. Wilson's mother, Ellen Dixon, was the daughter of Presbyterian minister Hugh Sheridan Dixon, who was interned at Laurel Hill East Section W. She was a prominent mainline socialite who became an influential benefactor of Virginia's Hampton Institute, the College for Freedmen, which had graduated Booker T. Washington in 1875. An avid clubman, Hugh Wilson went into the maritime insurance business but left plenty of time for his favorite sport. On 16 October 1905, he wed Mary Warren, one year his junior, at a society wedding whose guests included Frances Folsom Cleveland, wife of former President Grover Cleveland. Hugh and Mary had two daughters. Louise, who lived from 1906 to 2001, and Nancy, born in 1910, who only lived for six years. Other than that, there is surprisingly little information about Hugh Wilson available before he was chosen for this task. One Marion Club member has said, Anything about Hugh Wilson prior to 1912 is pure conjecture. Even his birthplace of Trenton, New Jersey was mistakenly called Scotland by at least one investigator. A 1925 obituary says, From the time he was a young man until the day of his death, he suffered from physical handicaps, which periodically brought him much pain and distress. He succeeded in keeping his personal tribulations from his friends And showed them only a cheerful, helpful disposition, such as is possessed by but a few men. He also kept this debilitating condition from public knowledge. I could find no indication of what it might be. Starting from scratch to build a golf course, Hugh Wilson had nothing to unlearn before he set out. To define this v-shaped course. He could make it up as he went along. When Marion Golf Club submitted its application to the National Registry of Historic Places in 1992, it stated, Wilson undertook a seven-month journey to Scotland and England in 1911 to study their fabled links. Yet, no one has ever found a record of him traveling to those places before construction started in 1911, the year that grading and seating occurred. Another oft-repeated legend is that while Wilson was in Europe studying golf courses, he decided to extend his stay, so he gave up his ticket on the first and only voyage of the RMS Titanic. That's a terrific story, but again, there's no proof that had happened. Several golf course historians have noticed the similarities between Marion East's Third Hole and the renowned 15th Hole at North Berwick, or the Depression in front of the 17th Green copying the Valley of Sin on the 18th at St. Andrews. The 116 bunkers nicknamed the White Faces of Marion for their glaring sand also reminded many of various Scottish links. Wilson also eliminated blind holes where traps could not be seen. In just over 130 acres at Marion East, he crammed features that were not seen in courses twice its size. Every hole has an elevation from tee to green, a sloping fairway, or both. For golfers whose strength is power and distance, they have to master the subtleties of golf to conquer Marion the World Atlas of Golf says that Marion is a classic example of a course that encourages attack but rewards only those with the skill to hold its fairways and strike the ball truly from them as well as the nerve to putt greens that are as swift as ice, End quote. Despite its relative postage stamp size of 6,544 yards, Marion East is held in reverence by nearly all golfers. Once the King himself, Arnold Palmer, said, What this fine course tells us today is that touch and control are as important as power in golf, although the combination is unbeatable. It takes brains to play Marion. One can't just slug away off the tees for each fairway has a little twist to it, if not a sharp dog leg. The greens are wonderfully varied, fast, and filled with subtle breaks. Jack Nicklaus once said, Marion is a perfect example that a golf course does not have to be long to be a great test of golf. Its strength is its subtlety. Raw power off the tee may be a big asset on a lot of our fake new championship courses, But at Marion, it will do you more harm than good unless it's combined with accuracy. It looks like if you would ask 10 different golfers what's so striking about Marion East, you might get 10 different answers. Sports Illustrated once compiled what it considered the best 18 golf holes in America, and it selected number 1 and number 11 at Marion It's the only course represented by more than one hole. The symbol of Marion East has, from the beginning, been the red wicker baskets that sit atop the flagstaffs to show where the hole is located on the green. Unlike flags, they do not waver in the breeze and can't help the golfer plan the next shot. Hugh Wilson purportedly borrowed this idea from the Sunningdale golf links outside of London. But a visitor from Sunningdale many years later denied that they'd ever used baskets. Another tale is that while he was on his inspection tour over Heath courses in Scotland, Wilson noted some shepherds who carried a similar basket on the top of their crooks to keep their lunches safe from nosy, hungry sheep. That's another great story, but (laughs) there's no proof. Nowadays, the baskets are woven from dampened cane by a woman in the Carolinas who prefers to remain anonymous. She only makes about 10 every year, although there is a smaller version that's used on the practice screen, and there are decorative versions which can be used as centerpieces in the clubhouse dining room. The baskets are dyed, dark red out, reddish-orange back. They don't wear out. They have tempted more than one souvenir hunter, however, so the ground crew gathers them at the end of every day and puts them back out the next morning. If you ever see the Red Basket any place other than the Marion Club, it is almost certainly illicit. Hugh Wilson did such a good job at Marion East that he was chosen to design Marion West, the Cobbs Creek Course in West Philadelphia. Seaview in Galloway, New Jersey, and Phoenixville Country Club's nine-hole course. Seaview was founded by public utility magnate Clarence H. Geist, whose massive Laurel Hill West mausoleum sits on an island simply called Geist Triangle, and which has a stained-glass triptych. Geist was also a founder of Boca Raton, Florida, and he probably needs a podcast of his own one of these days. When fellow Philadelphia golf architect George Crump, the man of birdie fame, died suddenly in 1918, Hugh was chosen to finish the design at New Jersey's Pine Valley, widely considered to be America's toughest course. Wilson is credited with building holes 12 through 15. Pine Valley, by the way, lacks fairways, roughs, and chipping surfaces, and is essentially an a 184-acre bunker where nearly any stray shot spells disaster. Golfers love it. Unfortunately, Hugh Wilson did not live to claim the glory of creating what is still one of the top ten courses in the country more than 100 years after he envisioned it, a course he called The Little Jewel. In 1925, he died of pneumonia at age 45, in his home at 705 Montgomery Avenue in Bryn Mawr. After services at the Bryn Mawr Presbyterian Church, he was buried at Laurel Hill West in the Montgomery section, not far from the bell tower. Dozens of caddies laid flowers on his grave. His gravestone is unremarkable and easily missed, unless you know where to look. I do include him on the this sporting life tour that I give every year at Laurel Hill West, however. Marion has had 18 United States Golf Association championship tournaments, more than any other course. The first USGA men's tournament at the East Course was the 1916 U.S. Amateur. It was the first time that golf legend Bobby Jones appeared in a national championship. He was 14 years old. Jones won his first U.S. amateur in 1924, also at Marion. In 1930, Bobby Jones had won the British amateur, British Open, and U.S. Open, and came to Marion to try and achieve what people thought was unattainable. He cruised through the first four rounds of match play to the final 36 hole match against Eugene Holmans on Saturday. Match play counts who wins a hole as opposed to stroke play, which tallies every shot. After the morning round, Jones was comfortably ahead by seven holes. Word got out, and the gallery swelled to 18,000 for the afternoon round, which forced the competitors to require an escort to get to the tee and the greens. When both players parred the 11th hole, Jones was eight holes ahead with seven to play, and he was declared the winner. Atlanta newsman O.B. Keeler used the term Grand Slam to describe his feat, and the term has stuck. Seven weeks after the tournament, Bobby Jones retired from competitive golf at age 28. Marion East had been his final crown. There is a plaque set in a rock next to the 11th hole tee box that commemorates Jones's victory. Other U.S. amateur championships occurred in 1966, 1989, and 2005. Additional legendary happenings at Marion East Ben Hogan's one iron shot on the 18th hole at the 1950 U.S. Open. There is a plaque commemorating this shot on the 18th tee. Also at the 1950 Open, Lee Mackey shot a record. 64 opening round. This has been matched only once since then by Ben Crenshaw in the 1981 Open. Mackey's second round was 81, 17 strokes higher than his first round. Other U.S. Opens at Marion were in 1934 when Ben Hogan and Byron Wilson both missed the cut. 1971, when Lee Trevino nipped Jack Nicklaus for a payoff of $30,000. 1981, and most recently in 2013, when English golfer Justin Rose took the $1.4 million purse with a one-over par 281 to beat Australian Jason Day and American Phil Mickelson by two strokes. The next USGA Championship Tournament at Marion East will be the US Amateur in 2026, the 250th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. The course will essentially look as it did in 1912, including the clubhouse hardwood floors pockmarked by thousands of metal spikes over many decades. Metal golf spikes have been around since the 1890s, but were gradually replaced by non-gouging plastic spikes in the 1990s. Marion feels that replacing the flooring would be like tossing the Shroud of Turin into a washing machine. The club veranda will, as usual, be filled with chattering diners, all of whom will stop in mid-bite to watch whoever is driving from the first tee, which is located just a few feet away. Get your tickets early. If they're sold out, there's always the next U.S. Open in 2030. And if you're still around, I probably will not be. Marion East is on the docket for a U.S. Open in 2050. When you make the pilgrimage, silently thank Hugh Wilson for creating his little jewel of a course. Lots of stuff coming up at the cemetery over August. I mean, this is a full month. The Hotspots Tours, which there are two every month, this is an introductory tour if you've never been to the cemetery. Saturday, August 12th at 10 a.m., and Friday, August 25th at 10 a.m., Those are general introductory tours, hotspots, and storied plots. There's a similar tour at Laurel Hill West on August 26th. It's called Sacred Spaces and Storied Places. That will be at 10 a.m. also, Saturday the 26th. What's the movie for August? Oh, it's a good one for a cemetery. The Witches of Eastwick will be showing at Laurel Hill East on Friday, August 18th at 7 p.m. What about the special tours? Let's see, we got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Holy cow, we got nine special tours. Okay, Saturday, August 5th, 11 a.m. A new one, it's called West Point Graduates from Andy Wasky, one of our military specialists. Sunday, the next day, August 6th at 10 a.m. Tour for Tiny Taffs. Taff is short for file. And this is a tour designed for children by Guinevere Eckert, and she is the perfect person to do this tour. She works with little kids. Same day, 1 p.m., if you want to stick around. It depends on the heat that day, I guess. Plot twist, second careers. Marty Foley will give that tour. Friday, August 11th, 7.30 p.m., paranormal investigation. Uh, there's some paranormal Investigators will be at the cemetery walking around talking about what they're looking for, what they're listening for, trying to explain. I will be there. I am not an investigator. I'm just a guide to point them in different directions. Also, on August 12th, Saturday, 3 p.m., Therapeutic Horticulture at Laurel Hill West. And the next day, Sunday, August 13th, Laurel Hill East is the classic hearse Show. It is from 10 a.m. until 4 p.m. Come in, look around the cemetery, and look at all the fancy hearses that people have brought to display. Saturday, August 19th at 10 a.m., Stop the Presses, Printers and Publishers of Laurel Hill. Peter Howell is doing that. That's another new tour. The next day, Sunday, August 20th at 10 a.m., not a new tour. It's a classic tour. It's the Heavenly Intonation Tour, Laurel Hill and Music. That is Rich Wilhelms. He's been doing that for years, and I never get tired of it. He's always got new information about musicians that are buried at Laurel Hill East. And finally, I told you there were a lot. Finally, on August 27th, which is Sunday, 10 a.m., unlisted, experienced guides, veteran guides, Tom and Patty Stringer, will tell you about people who are buried without a marker and you might be able to find out from them how they find people who don't have a marker it's really an interesting process so that's what's coming up at Tours at Laurel Hill for August let's get back to the podcast sometimes when I start to research someone I literally don't know what I'm going to find I use some common resources obviously wikipedia newspaper.com ancestry.com archive.org but then sometimes i head to the gatehouse at laurel hill east where we have a really nice although small library of books on philadelphia history some biographies of some of our dearly departed and even books written by them the other stop is in the vault There's a shelf full of thick black file cases, which contain hundreds of short biographies. We call them the bio boxes. And then there's the actual lot file, a manila folder crammed with burial details, maintenance records, correspondence between the cemetery supervisor and family members, and occasionally a brief newspaper obituary. Well, sometimes I strike it rich and I find a biography that's never been published, which was written by a family member. And sometimes I find other surprises. I mentioned before that the Philadelphia School of Golf Architects was six men who designed golf courses all over the country. When Golf Week magazine recently listed its 100 classic courses in the U.S., a staggering 27 of the top 100 were designed by these six men. One of them was George Clifford Thomas Jr., also known as the Captain, 1873-1932. He primarily made his name designing courses in California, but he was a Philadelphian through and through. George's father, George Sr., 1839-1909, was a banker and a very successful one. My first surprise in the lot file was a five-page typed biography by a family member that was apparently written shortly after his death more than 110 years ago. After George graduated from Episcopal Academy, he joined a financial firm with Jay Cook. You may remember that throughout the Civil War, The great financial operations of the government were conducted by this firm which lent the U.S. government hundreds of millions of dollars, and George was one of its active partners. Jay Cook had come to Philadelphia in 1838 and taken a job with E.W. Clark & Company, making partner status in 1842. Enoch White Clark was not only a successful financier, but he had a family that was riddled with many successes and interesting marriages. His grandson, Clarence Monroe Clark, was the first U.S. tennis doubles champion with his friend, later brother-in-law, Frederick Winslow Taylor. They are both at Laurel Hill West. I talked about them in All Bones Considered number 34, Tennis Anyone. Another grandson, Joseph Sill Clark Sr., is in the Tennis Hall of Fame in Newport. He married Kate Richmond Avery, sister-in-law to Edmund McElhenney, inventor of Tabasco sauce. McElhenney's Tabasco sauce? Son Percy Hamilton Clark married Elizabeth Roberts, daughter of George Brooke Roberts, president of the Pennsylvania Railroad. In 1930, their daughter, Mary Todd Hunter Clark, married future New York governor and U.S. vice president Nelson Rockefeller at St. Asaph's Church on Conshohocken State Road in Bala-Kinwood. That is quite a family of achievers. When Jay Cook's business collapsed in the Panic of 1873, George Thomas Sr. started a new business with Joseph M. Shoemaker, 1830 to 1901. His monument in Section 7 of Laurel Hill East is made of zinc, or if you prefer, white bronze. It features a weeping woman on top and a bold inscription, Death loves a shining mark. That's a line from Night Thoughts by the 18th century British poet Edward Young. That's the same poem in which he said, By night an atheist half believes a god. Death loves a shining mark is also the title of an annual tour that we give at Laurel Hill East. George Thomas Sr.'s next partner was Anthony J. Drexel and he found himself in the middle of virtually every large financial transaction in the city of Philadelphia. He was also a member of the firm of J.P. Morgan. I doubt that a financial pedigree could be much better. J.P. Morgan, Anthony Drexel, and J. Cook. Needless to say, George Thomas Sr. became a wealthy man and he retired from business in 1905 in his mid-60s. George Sr. was also a philanthropist and a collector, especially of autographs. His giving to the Episcopal Church was legendary. He once purchased 10,000 Bibles and handed them out to whichever school districts needed them. As a ravenous autograph collector, he once owned manuscript letters signed by every signer of the Declaration of Independence, plus a few from Washington and Franklin. He also owned Robert E. Lee's letter, in which he surrendered his commission in the Army of the United States at the outbreak of the Civil War. And he had a letter dated 9 August 1853, which was written by U.S. Secretary of War Jefferson Davis, in which he promoted U.S. Grant to the rank of captain. George's Chestnut Hill House was decorated with paintings from France and Holland, and portraits by Sir Joshua Reynolds and James Whistler. It was into this privileged household and environment that George Clifford Thomas Jr. was born in 1873. Like his father, George Jr. attended Episcopal Academy, and then he graduated at age 21 from the University of Pennsylvania in 1894. He then joined his father's investment firm, Drexel & Company, and stayed until 1907, when he turned his attention to rose gardening. He became a master horticulturalist. He was an expert swimmer, a marginal golfer, and he had learned to fly a plane. He wrote two books on the care and breeding of roses, the first in 1914, the second in 1929. He was responsible for dozens of cultivars. Two of the favorites were Golden Showers Rose and Cascadia. Plus, he raised English setters. He was a co-founder of the English Setter Club in America. Many of Thomas' friends called him the Captain. During the Great War, he had joined the 96th Aero Squadron of the Army Air Corps. Thomas scholar Jeff Shackelford notes that Thomas was an active pilot and crashed three times during the European fight. It is also thought that he used his great wealth to fund his squadron's activities. Shackelford has written a biography of Thomas. It's entitled, The Captain George C. Thomas Jr. and His Golf Architecture. It is available from bookstores on the web, but the lowest price that I saw, was $325. No local library had a copy of this book, which was published in a limited edition. I emailed Jeff Shackelford more than a week before I wrote this section, and he has not answered back. I asked him to share more details on Thomas's early life, especially his time in the military, as I could find nothing. Thomas's interest in golf involved more than playing. In 1908, he designed the Mount Airy Country Club, now called White Marsh Valley Country Club, just outside of Philadelphia. It's on his family estate. For years, the Thomas family house served as the clubhouse. The club is still there. It's contiguous with the Morris Arboretum. I will do a podcast on the Morrises eventually. They were brother and sister. And the address of the club is appropriately on... Thomas Road. He also crafted two other courses, Marion spelled M-A-R-I-O-N in Massachusetts and Spring Lake in New Jersey. But then he moved to Beverly Hills in 1919 to continue his rose breeding work in a better climate. But once he arrived in California, he became enamored with the possibility of building more golf courses. Thomas's first California contribution was a fabled course at La Cumbre Country Club in Santa Barbara. Today the club remains strong, but Thomas's course is long gone. However, it was at La Cumbre that George C. Thomas met William P. Billy Bell, a master shaper, builder, designer, and the two of them would collaborate on most of Thomas's top courses over the next decade. It was Bell that helped fashion the signature Thomas Bunker stylings with intricate edges, slopes, and shapes. In 1926, he was presented with an almost unsolvable conundrum, acreage with ravines and creeks that they thought might support a nine-hole golf course. Thomas converted this spit of land into an 18-hole golf course for the Bel Air Country Club. The fairways descend into gorges and then climb out of them, sometimes via a tunnel, an elevator. Yes, there's an elevator on the course, and there's an iconic suspension bridge at the stunning 210-yard par-3 tenth hole. It calls for a carry of 150 yards across a steep canyon. If you search for photos of Bel Air, odds are they will include that bridge. Thomas also put two large mounds out in front of the 12th green, which Hollywood locals quickly dubbed May West. Bel Air Country Club has been a haven for Hollywood luminaries ever since it opened. It has been golf home to leading men like Humphrey Bogart, Clark Gable, Jimmy Stewart, Fred Astaire, and Spencer Tracy. An amazingly lush hillside off the fourth fairway was a backdrop in an early Tarzan movie. The star of that flick, Johnny Weissmuller, was a frequent guest at the club, and whenever he reached number four, he had to uncork a thunderous Tarzan yell that rang throughout the course. In 1961, Richard Nixon, a dues paying member at the time, made his lone ace on the third hole. Howard Hughes, reputedly a one-handicapper, once landed a single-engine plane on the 8th fairway because he was running late for a golf date with Katherine Hepburn, who lived just off the 14th fairway. Hepburn was such an accomplished golfer that she insisted on playing from the men's tees. The club had Hughes' plane towed away and presented him with the bill. He wouldn't pay it, and instead he resigned his membership. Although it does not rank in the top 100 at present, Bel Air is one of the premier courses in California, and it's probably the friendliest of Thomas's three California gems. In 1927, Thomas set another benchmark with a substantial redesign of Los Angeles Country Club's North Course. LACC had been established in 1897 on a leased lot at the corner of Pico and Alvarado two names familiar to any fans of the comic troupe Firesign Theater. Wilshire Boulevard was a dirt road, and Los Angeles sort of grew up around the course. Bel Air to the north, Beverly Hills to the east, Century City to the south, and Westwood and Brentwood to the west. It expanded to 18 holes in 1910, then to 36 holes. It was 1927-28 that George C. Thomas designed the new layout for the North Course. This is from a 1995 article in Sports Illustrated. The smell of old money clings to L.A.C.C. like stale beer on a frat house carpet. The sprawling clubhouse is understated and comfortable. No gaudy marble here. L.A. is the only one of the West Side Six that doesn't have valet parking. Of course, there's always plenty of room in the parking lot. There are some 1,500 members, but no need for tea times. There's that little play, even on the user-friendly South Course. Explains one member, the average age here is deceased. LACC had a reputation of rejecting actors. Bing Crosby built a house on the course and he was still rejected for membership. Matinee idol Randolph Scott once approached the club about membership, and he was told there's not any room for an actor. Scott pleaded unsuccessfully, haven't you seen any of my movies? It also had the history of rejecting tournament play, although it did host the Los Angeles Open in 1926, 34, 35, 36, and 40. The first USGA major tournament at the LACC North was June of 2023. This is also the first US Open to be played in Los Angeles since the Riviera Country Club hosted the tournament in 1948. American golfer Wyndham Clark won the $3.6 million purse with a 10 under par 270. The 1948 winner... Ben Hogan finished eight under par, and he took home $2,000. It was in 1927 that George Thomas wrote his classic tome, Golf Architecture in America, Its Strategy and Construction. This book became the Bible of golf course architecture. It bursts with idea after statement after proclamation on every design and maintenance issue imaginable. From an acceptable number of par threes, five is fine, to his disdain for penal bunkering that disproportionately favors the long hitter, to his dislike of long par fives, and high grass. Scenery, strategy, balance, and variety are paramount. Wherever possible, natural hazards and helpful kick slopes are to be employed. He sums up nicely, stating, When you play a course and remember each hole, it has individuality and change. If your mind cannot recall the exact sequence of the holes, that course lacks the great assets of originality and diversity. The third George Thomas, Jr. California course on Everybody's Must Play list is Riviera, which Thomas built in 1927 for the Los Angeles Athletic Club, not the country club, the Athletic Club. It is carved from a vast eucalyptus studded canyon three miles from the Pacific Ocean. It met Thomas's edict that an ideal course is one where you remember the holes in order superb strategic holes, elevation change, brilliant bunker placement, and individually distinctive holes dominate. All-stars include the long par-3 fourth, the par-3 sixth, with a tiny bunker cut into the green. You might make the green, and you still have to putt around a bunker. And of course, the all-world tenth. This 315-yard slight dog-leg right par 4 is often thought of as the ultimate risk-reward hole on the PGA Tour. Any self-respecting pro can drive the green, but the penalties for missing are so severe thanks to the skillful positioning of both bunkers and putting surface that fives and sixes are much more common than twos. Jack Nicklaus once stated that the 10th at Riviera presents more options than any short hole in the world. The Riviera has hosted the 1948 US Open, 1983 and 1995 PGA Championship, 1998 US Senior Open, and the 2017 US Amateur. In 1992, as a high school sophomore from Cyprus in neighboring Orange County, Tiger Woods played his very first PGA Tour event On a sponsor's exemption as an amateur at Riviera, he shot 72-75. He missed the cut by six strokes. Tiger has never won a sanctioned tournament at the Riviera. But then again, neither did Jack Nicklaus. Riviera is also the course where O.J. Simpson played most of his golf. Like Hugh Wilson, George Thomas never took a penny for designing a golf course. He did it for the love of the game. Thomas is also revered in Catalina and Mexico for his big game fishing exploits. Game fishing became a passion in the late 20s when he would spend days on the water. Quote, always elegantly attired in plus fours, hat, vest, he and his pilot, Captain Farnsworth, set records, stated his great granddaughter. A record marlin catch in Avalon, 920 1929 was achieved on an all linen line in nine hours and five minutes. Thomas wrote his Game Fish of the Pacific, Southern Californian and Mexican with great illustrations and advice for catching tuna, swordfish, marlin, giant bass, etc. Zane Gray was most appreciative, suggesting to Ernest Hemingway that Thomas's book was a great read. In 1901, Thomas married Edna Ridge in Philadelphia. They had two children, George Clifford III and Josephine. In 1932, a heart attack at 58 took this great designer, author, creator, and sportsman of exceptional talents. His body was shipped back to Philadelphia to rest at Laurel Hill East in Section J. Now here's the other surprise that I got from the lot file. It was a receipt from the studios of Louis Comfort Tiffany for ledger stones for the captain and his family. If you go see his grave, remember that those beautiful stones were carved by Louis Tiffany and company. And finally, in 2008, George Thomas was posthumously inducted into the Southern California Golf Association's Hall of Fame. What are your odds of being killed by a lightning strike? In the United States, about 2,000 people are struck every year, and about 10% of them die. This is quite a bit more than shark attacks, and it's actually the second most common cause of death by nature, after floods. In 2016, The Sun, a British tabloid, printed a story about a heavy machine operator in South Carolina who'd been struck by lightning 11 times. I have only found two people at Laurel Hill killed by lightning. There was a third, a teenage girl, her name was Alice Haight, H-A-Y-T. In 1922, after a major thunderstorm, she went searching for her cat, and she was found dead with her cat a few feet away from her. Her cause of death was purportedly electrocution after contact with a downed electrical wire but I also wonder if that might have been a lightning strike. Our most recent lightning victim was a 21-year-old college student from Rosemont named Daniel Caesar. He was hiking in the Grand Canyon with three college friends from Rice University in 1993. And he was struck by lightning and he died on the spot. Daniel was a graduate of Shipley School. His tombstone is in the South Lawn section of Laurel Hill West and has an engraving of a guitar and a staff of music on it. But since the topic of this podcast is golf, I will tell you of Charles F. Bailey, as reported in the Philadelphia Evening Bulletin, on 26 July, 1933. Lightning killed two men in the Mainline District yesterday afternoon, when a heavy thunder shower swept over the city and suburbs causing numerous floods of streets and cellars and breaking the grip of a four-day heat wave. Charles Frederick Bailey, 31, of Hidden Inn, Haverford, an oil company official and well-known golfer, was struck by a bolt on the fourth green of the east course of Marion Cricket Club and was killed. Three physicians who were playing the same course administered artificial respiration on the green, but were unable to resuscitate him. The second lightning victim was Oscar Brown, 47, of Winwood Road, Ardmore. Mr. Brown was employed as a gravedigger at the Lutheran Cemetery near his home. His body was discovered following the storm by two girls. Miss Margaret L. Dunn and Miss Emma Wolfe, both of Sutton Road, Ardmore, saw the body beside a hedge in the cemetery and notified police. Mr. Bailey, who was socially prominent, was playing golf with Thomas R. Holm, son of Thomas W. Holm, a vice president of the Pennsylvania Railroad. Mr. Holm had putted and stepped back to the edge of the green to allow Mr. Bailey to putt. The sky was overcast, but no rain had fallen. There was a terrific clap of thunder, and both players, as well as their caddies, were knocked down. Mr. Holm, it was said, was sent spinning 20 feet, and when he regained his legs, rushed to aid Mr. Bailey. The caddies called Dr. Donald McFarlane, Dr. J.C. Birdsall, and Dr. F.G. Harrison, who were a short distance away. They worked over Mr. Bailey several minutes, and then ordered him taken to Bryn Mawr Hospital in an ambulance. There he was placed on a respirator where he was kept more than three hours in an effort to revive him. Mr. Bailey was one of the most popular golfers in the Philadelphia district. Although he never gained great prominence as a tournament player, he qualified for several important events during the last few years. His playing was confined to friendly matches at Marion Cricket Club, his home club. He qualified for the recent Pennsylvania Amateur Championship at Marion and gave an excellent account of himself in the match rounds. He served on the National Amateur Championship Committee in the tournament held at Marion in 1930. Mr. Bailey graduated from Princeton in 1924 and was a member of the Marion Cricket and Rittenhouse Clubs. Six months ago, he married the former Mrs. Edith Haynes Beeman She was said last night to be in Boston. Mr. Bailey is survived by his mother, Mrs. Charles W. Bailey of Stratford, and a sister, Mrs. Benjamin H. Brewster Coons of Philadelphia. Mr. Holm, with whom Mr. Bailey was playing, is a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania and the husband of the former Miss Dorothy Vare and the daughter of Mrs. E. H. Vare Sr., former state senator. An article in the public ledger added that the bolt that struck City Hall did no serious damage. It hit the statue of William Penn, danced around the seal work of Penn's hat, and then followed wires downward. The Philadelphia Record twisted the story a little bit and said that Gravedigger Brown plunged forward into the partially completed crypt after he was struck. A few comments. Bailey and Holm were playing at the Marion Cricket Club. The Marion Golf Club did not acquire that name until February 1942 when it split from the Cricket Club. At the time of separation, multi-millionaire J. Howard Pugh, 1882-1971, served as president of both. He's in the massive Pugh Mausoleum In the Franconia section of Laurel Hill West. There will be a Biographical Bites from Bala about the Pugh family later this year. Bailey's golfing partner, Thomas Reed Holm, died fairly young of heart failure at age 47 in 1952. His obituary headline called him Thomas R Holm Golfer. He's interred in New Jersey. Holmes' father-in-law, former Pennsylvania State Senator Edwin Hornberger Vare, is in the Hanover section of Laurel Hill West. Vare's son's wife, Glenna Collette Vare, 1903-1989, to 1989, was the premier female golfer of her day. She is in the Golf Hall of Fame. Jean Saracen called her the best female golfer who ever lived. He put her ahead of Babe Zaharias and many others. I will do a podcast about her one of these days also, and I'm certainly going to include her in my future sports tours. All three doctors who attempted bystander resuscitation are at Laurel Hill. Donald McFarland is in the family plot at Laurel Hill East, Section M. Joseph Cooper Birdsall is in the Moreland Section of Laurel Hill West, and Francis G. Harrison is in the Hanover section of Laurel Hill West. That's the same section where the Vairs are buried. This was more than 25 years before sternal compressions were found to provide temporary adequate circulation. So the physicians probably used the Schaeffer method or the prone pressure method of resuscitation where victims were laid face down And compression applied to the middle of the back. This was done to expel air from the lungs. Upon release of the pressure on the back, the air would return to the lungs. Having the victim face down was done to allow any water, in the case of drowning or froth or vomit, to leave the victim's mouth easily. I presume the three physicians finished their round, but this did remind me of a joke which is probably almost as old as golf. Peter plays golf every weekend. One Saturday he comes home five hours late and he looks exhausted. His wife asks him what happened to you? What took so long? Peter said that was the worst game of golf I've ever had. Harry hit a hole in one off the first tee and then he immediately dropped dead of a heart attack. Peter's wife says, oh, my God, that's horrible. Peter says, I know, I know. And then for the rest of the round, it was hit the ball, drag Harry. Hit the ball, drag Harry. Hit the ball, drag Harry. In the mid-August edition of Biographical Bites from Bala, Laurel Hill West Stories, author, historian, and fellow volunteer tour guide Tom Keels will relate the larger-than-life tale of Henry Plumer McElhaney, the first gentleman of Philadelphia, of whom Andy Warhol once said, he's the only person in Philadelphia with clamor. The September edition of All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, concerns some American composers who wrote songs that are still popular today. William Kirkpatrick was an Irish-born American hymn writer who composed more than a thousand religious songs, including one that has become a favorite Christmas carol. Septimus Winner wrote three songs in the mid-19th century, which are still being sung today, especially in schools and at camp. Mac Edward Leach was a renowned musicologist who was responsible for making folklore into an academic discipline. And Sophie Lewis Hutchinson married into the talented drinker family where she fit right in with the other overachievers and developed women's musicological and gender studies. Laurel Hill East is located at 3822 Ridge Avenue in the East Falls section of Philadelphia. It is an easy walk from the bus stop at ridge in Allegheny for SEPTA buses R1 and 61. Admission is free, there is parking in the lot across the street, and there's an app that you can download for a self-guided tour through its 78 acres. Laurel Hill West is at 225 Belmont Avenue in Ballackinwood with lots of parking at both the main entrance and at the Bell Tower. Public transportation, your best bet is probably to take the SEPTA Regional Rail to Maniunk or one of the many buses to the Wissahickon Transfer Center on Ridge Avenue. Cross the Schuylkill River into Balakinwood. You'll be leaving Philadelphia into Ballackinwood, but cross the Schuylkill River on the Pencoid Pedestrian Bridge and then come up Writer's Ferry Road to the entrance near the Pet Cemetery. If you download the audios I've done for self-guided tours, they'll lead you to a 40 to 45 minute tour that talks about the people interred along the route through the cemetery from the Writer's Ferry entrance, from the Pencoid entrance over to the Barmouth entrance and back again. Both Laurel Hill East and Laurel Hill West are currently open from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., And as always, we welcome dog walkers. Please pick up after your dog. Please keep your dog on a leash. Bike riders, photographers, painters, bird watchers, nature buffs, tree and plant lovers, skateboarders, and strollers, both the two-footed and four-wheeled variety. Both Laurel Hill East and Laurel Hill West give frequent historic tours. If you want to see what I told you in the middle of the program, go to laurelhillphl.com slash events slash calendar if you follow us on Instagram and Facebook you'll get a daily reminder of our inhabitants and activities you can also follow All Bones Considered on Instagram and Facebook once you have fallen in love with these hotspots become a friend of Laurel Hill and you'll have the opportunity for several members only special tours conducted each year including some inside the mausoleum visits They may be cemeteries, but they are a couple of the liveliest spots in town. And if you want to find the gift shop online, click support at the top of the page, and the gift shop will be listed in the left-handed column. And before I forget, Grave Diggers Ball is coming up. Grave Diggers Ball is our biggest fundraiser of the year, but it is just such a joyous event this year it's going to be at the please touch museum in fairmount park and i can't wait we're going to get a personal guided tour if you get vip tickets which are kind of expensive but it's going to be worth it for you it's it's on uh, the friday the 13th of course october 13th uh, at please touch museum but we'll get a private tour it's going to be a lot of fun Check it out. Go to the website. And if you find it in your heart to buy a couple of tickets, I hope to see you at the Costume Ball on Friday the 13th in October. Our theme song, Names at Peace, was written and performed by local artist James Harrow. All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, and Biographical Bites from Bala, Laurel Hill West Stories, are researched, written, narrated, and produced by me, Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine at Temple University, and you can reach me through my email, joe@jolex.net. Remember to keep body and soul together until next time on All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories, where the plot thickens. Stick around if you want to hear the references that I used for this podcast. Until the next time we meet, stay safe, stay well. For information on country clubs in and around Philadelphia, I used an article from the Encyclopedia of Greater Philadelphia by Anne E. Krulikowski. It's fairly complete. For Ida Dixon, I got an article from the U.S. Golf Association it's called Chapter 21, Ladies of the Links, but I don't know what it's from. <laughs> I don't know which book it is. I do want to acknowledge the fact that the uh, U.S. Golf Association was kind enough to share that information with me. But that's about all I had on Ida Dixon. Now, Hugh Wilson, there's a lot of material, but a lot of it is not really true. Most of what I told you is from Various newspaper articles. There really was an uptick in wanting to get information about Marion East out in 2013 when the last U.S. Open was there. And uh, a lot of those touched on the Hugh Wilson story. There's also a book called The Architects of Golf, a survey of golf course design from its beginnings to the present with an encyclopedic listing of golf architects and their courses. It's encyclopedic, except it doesn't open, doesn't even mention Ida Dixon. Anyway, that's by Jeffrey S. Cornish and Ronald E. Whitten. It's HarperCollins Publishing, 1981. The edition I have was updated in 1993. I do understand that... The latest edition of this has a section on Ida Dixon. George Clifford Thomas again it was several newspaper articles plus as I say that five-page biography that I found in the file at Laurel Hill East on his father on George Clifford Thomas I got some information From that about George Jr. Unfortunately I could not get my hands on what is probably the definitive work about him, The Captain by Jeff Shackelford. There was however an article called Captain Fantastic Architect George C. Thomas Jr. that was written by Joe Passov from 2018 magazine, F-O-R-E magazine. Much of the information about the history of golf more than a hundred years ago came from a Scottish website on the history of golf that walked me through a lot of that. Finally, the information on Charles Bailey came from newspaper articles uh, the day that he was struck by lightning. It was interesting to compare three different articles though because each reporter had his or her own um, interpretation of what happened and uh, one of them overly dramatized by having one of the people struck by lightning fall into the open grave that he was in the middle of digging. Um, I doubt that that really happened. I got information from the websites of various country clubs and golf courses that helped also a little bit here a little bit there so I really picked from a lot of sources this time I just I'm not very good at keeping track of uh, where I get this information because when I see something really good I just get it down on paper and move on anyway that's uh, pretty much a summary of uh, what I used for this month's podcast thanks for sticking around maybe I'll see you at the cemetery stay safe stay well